Now, the conditions of the covenant are given by the greater party. Let me say that again. The conditions of the covenant are given by the greater party for both him and the other person. The greater party gets to decide the terms for both sides. And they go off, they discuss it. Hey, I'm going to do this and you'll do this. You do that and I'll do this. If the lesser party says, okay, great, we have a covenant. If the lesser party says, no way, those aren't fair. How come you only have to do this and I only have to do that? Great, we don't have a covenant. That's fine. So in the Middle East, you might have a covenant, if it's a blood covenant, where the greater party, let's say it's the father of a daughter who has been uh, asked to be married. And it, maybe it's the, the grandfather of the young man. I have a nice, wealthy estate. And I have power. I have authority. So I would be the greater party. So I get the grandfather and me and the grandfather, we're going to enter into a blood covenant. I would say something like, well, my daughter will be faithful. She will be a good wife. She will be uh, a good mother. And she will be hardworking. Those are my terms. Your terms, your son or grandson will be faithful, will not be lazy, will not be a drunk, will be faithful and loyal to my daughter for the rest of his life. We good? We're good. Then they do something incredible. There's all these people around watching. They take the sheep, they hang it up, they drain its blood, catch it in a basin, and they pour it out on the pavement. Then the greater party always goes first. Why? Because he's got power. Because he's got authority. Because he's the one that decided the contract. He stands up to the blood, kicks off his sandals, and splashes all in the blood. Doesn't say a word. And then steps out. Then the lesser party's turn. Walk up to the blood. Kick off the sandals. Disgusting, splattering blood all over his clothes, all over the people that are there, and gets out and doesn't say a word. Then a toast, a cheer, and a celebration. And if you were watching this, you'd say, What the heck happened? They just killed an animal and just walked around in his blood. This is what happened. In picture, if my daughter is unfaithful, if she turns out not to be a good mother, if she turns out to be a gossip, liar, you, sir, may do this in my blood. Big deal. Then the lesser party says, okay, if my son ends up being a lazy, drunk, maybe physically abusive, then you may do this to me. Nobody says a word. The picture says it all. And if that man ended up being lazy, drunk, abusive, you wouldn't find him dead. You'd find his dad dead with his throat cut in the bottom of a wadi canyon with footprints of blood all around it. Because that was the blood covenant they entered into. This is what Abram is in the middle of. That's why he said, oh, snap, me and my chutzpah. Like, what am I doing? Right? Oh, gosh. So... Um, God's conditions, I will give you land, I will give you descendants, and I will give you a Messiah. 
And Genesis 18, God says, here's what I want from you. Here's your side. You ready, Abram? Abram says, yes. He says, all I need you to do is walk before me blamelessly. Now give me another word for blamelessly. Say it again, real loud. Sinless. All I need you to be is sinless. And Abraham says, okay. God says, good. We got a blood covenant. The animals are cut in half. The blood path is there. Then Abram falls into a deep sleep, which you would expect because God does not speak to Abraham face to face like he did Moses. So he's going to speak to him in a vision. And then a thick and dreadful darkness descended over him. And in this vision, what's the first symbol that appears? To pass through the pieces. Do you remember? What is it? Somebody said it real soft. It is. It's the smoking fire pot. What's a smoking fire pot? Well, a smoking fire pot is a pot that you would stoke the fire for the day. And, and, um, sorry, you would pour out the coals from the previous day's fire onto your new kindling and onto your, into your fireplace to start the fire for the day. Then as that fire burns down, you get those coals. You don't have a bick. You don't have a matches. So you keep those coals in that fire pot. And because of the air inlet and outlet, it stokes those coals and keeps them burning all night so that you can wake up in the morning, grab that smoking fire pot, pour those coals on and, re and perpetuate the fire. Pretty ingenious. That appears and passes right through the animals. Now, who does this symbol represent? Why? Uh, it's just a smoke. It's a smoking. So there's no fire in here. It's just a smoking fire pot. But why, how do I know it's God? Because he's the, not the higher power. What do we say? What's the terms? He's the greater party. He's not the lesser party. Oh my gosh. Who's the lesser party? Abram's the lesser party. God's the greater party. God always goes first. Tell me where smoke represents God in the Bible. Smoke, smoke or cloud. Either one, because it's the same thing. Smoke and cloud is exactly the same thing. Egypt. Okay, good. Yes. Smoke. Smoke on the tabernacle. The cloud of uh, by day and the fire pillar, which would have smoke at night. Good. Those are all symbols for God, right? Um, the second symbol appears... And what is it? It's a flaming torch. Fire. And the real question is, who does the second symbol stand for? Now, it should be who? Abram. But, or Abraham. But not once in the entire Bible is fire ever a symbol for a human being. What is fire always a symbol for? Who? God. God is an all-consuming fire. Right? God's fire comes out of the temple and consumes the altar uh, on the altar of sacrifice. God is always a fire. Wait a minute. The smoking fire pot went through first. Then a flaming torch went through. And guys, what is God's favorite picture in the Bible for human beings? Judges 9, Psalm 96, Jeremiah 17, Proverbs 27, fig tree. What's God's favorite picture in the Bible for a human? 
Hmm, say it loud. A tree. A tree. Remember trees. Uh, trees planted by streams of living water. Um, you will be a, a bush in the desert. Those that depend on their own strength. Those that depend on the Lord are like a tree planted by living water. Guys, as Abraham stands up and gets ready to put his toe in that blood, it's as if God in picture puts his hand in Abraham's chest and says, no, if you don't walk before me blamelessly, sinlessly, then Abram, you may do this to me. And in that moment, God sentenced Jesus Christ to death. Because fire is always God. But follow the picture. What are torches made out of? Wood. What's trees made out of? What's the picture? It's a God-man. It's a human that's on fire. It's a God-man that passes through. That's Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, when we begin to see the pictures that God gives us in Scripture, it'll bring tears to your eyes. It'll make your heart skip a beat. It might make you stand up and say, oh God, you are so awesome in this place. So for the rest of the Old Testament, y'all, sacrifices were not to forgive sins. No. You know what the five animals you were allowed to use to make all the sacrifices in the temple for the rest of Jewish history? Heifer? Sheep? Ram, turtle dove, pigeon. Same five animals. Isn't that amazing? Now, the Jews believed that when the priest took the blood and threw it against the altar, it was saying to God, God, you promised Abram a long time ago that you would pay for our sins. Remember, God walks through the pieces to say, I love you, Abram, and I will keep my promise. And then Abram stands up and thinks, I'm a dead man. And there goes the flaming torch. And Abram says, whoa. And God says, and when you can't keep your covenant, you can do this to me. Abraham doesn't understand, but God does. So in Exodus 29, God is so serious about his promise that like 400 years later, God's still saying, listen, I want you to understand. I'm going to pay for your sins somehow. So I want you every single day at nine in the morning, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, I want a sacrifice to be made at the place where I choose to put my name. All right? And all Hebrews everywhere, so that no matter what, if you're in Rome, Syria, you know that at nine in the morning and at three in the afternoon, there, in the place where God put his name, there was an animal being sacrificed and blood being thrown against the altar. To remind God, God, you promised to pay for my sin. Please keep your promise. That is what the significance of the sacrifice in the temple were. Moses must have said, every day, wait, how often, Moses? Every day, I want a sacrifice. That's a lot of animals. Well, what about Shabbat? Sabbath. Especially Shabbat. You need to stand up, Kyle. Do it. 
Especially Shabbat. This is good. It's the end of the story is coming. Yes, I want to sacrifice on Saturday. Are you kidding me? Well, what about if it's snowing? You'll be cold. What if it's raining? You'll get wet. What if it's really sunny? You'll be hot. I don't care. Surely not on holidays. Especially holidays. Yes. Every single day I want to sacrifice, God says, at nine in the morning. Very specific. Three in the afternoon. Do not fail. This is the way that you shall remind me of my promise. Wow. It began at the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle's the tent. Then Solomon's temple. Then, by Jesus' day, y'all, the second temple reconstructed by King Herod. By this time, it had become a very elaborate ceremony because that's what we humans do. We turn simple things into something very elaborate. As it approached nine or three, a priest would stand by the altar with a lamb and a knife to its throat. Another priest would stand at the highest point above ground of the temple called the pinnacle. And he would have in his hands a shofar. This is an actual shofar. It is a ram's horn, a sheep, a male sheep's horn that they've just simply hollowed out and made a mouthpiece to it. There's a priest standing with one of these and he's waiting. And there's another priest where the sundial is in the temple court or outside of it. And as it approaches nine, he gives the signal to the man with the shofar. And this shofar was a ram's horn to remind them of their desert father, Abraham, who made a blood covenant with God where God said, I'll pay for your sin. And this is probably not exactly what it sounded like, but somewhat. So you're walking around. It's 8.56. You don't know what time it is. You don't have a watch. You're buying, you're selling, you're doing your trade, you're seeing your friends, and all of a sudden you hear So you hear that sound and you stop. And I stand because they know as soon as that shofar blasts, after the sound comes the knife and the blood against the altar to say, God, you promised. Please don't forget. You said you'd pay for my sin. When it was done at G in Jesus' day, at the blowing of the shofar, the entire city of Jerusalem, a city of 80 to 100,000 people, everyone who believed would stand and in silence pay their respects because they knew that blood was coming. Powerful moment. Now, it's a Friday. The only difference is that it's a holiday. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that there would have been about 2 million people 100,000, 2 million. 2 million people in the city on that day. Oh, and there's another difference. Because just outside the city gate near an old abandoned stone quarry, there are three men on crosses. And the one in the middle looks dead. Okay? The hourglass 
ran. It was three o'clock, signals given. And the man in the middle, at that sound, raised up his head and screamed, It's finished! And he dies. Just like his father promised. And when he screamed, it's finished, I don't think he meant, oh, my pain, or even my life. I think he meant, it's all finished! I did it! I paid the blood that you promised 1,800 years earlier. I did it. I did it. And without saying one word about it, Jesus Christ dying on the cross ties the entire Bible together in one picture. And there really are no words adequate to capture the power of the picture of the blood of Almighty God dripping in the dust to pay for my sin just like he promised he would in this weird, obscure, bizarre vision with Abram when that torch passed through. God said, I'm going to do it. Just wait, I'll do it. And can you guys believe that the gospel of Mark tells us that it was the third hour, 9 a.m., when they crucified him? And then Mark says, when the sixth hour had come, darkness over the whole land, and until the ninth hour, exactly at 3 p.m., Jesus dies. At three and at nine, when the, when the lamb was killed and the blood was thrown, that's when Jesus was crucified and died. In the beginning, man and woman were created in the image and likeness of God. And the Lord, blessed be he, dresses himself in what? Light. Adam and Eve lost their glorious garments when they chose to believe Satan over God. Blood now had to be shed and a covering had to be torn from the lifeless body of another, of an innocent and given to them. And they were covered, but never again with the glorious and radiant garments that they once wore. Now listen to Paul in Galatians 3.27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. God clothes us, not in animal skins, but in the ultimate innocent body, man's skin. God clothes us in Jesus Christ. It's so powerful. And that God wraps the glorious, radiant clothing of Messiah around you and me. Guys, that does something to my soul that I cannot begin to put into words. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who clothes us with the glory of Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome, huh? Whew. That's the blood covenant with Abraham. 